Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Patricia Allen. She is chair and professor of a new department at Merrill Hurst University in Portland, Oregon. She chairs the Department of Food Systems and Society. Before going to Merrill Hurst, she was most recently the director of the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's also the author of a terrific book called Together at the Table, Sustainability and Sustenance in the American Agri-Food System. I heard Dr. Allen speak at the University of Missouri, and I thought she was so insightful and had such refreshing ideas about our food system that I wanted her to be my guest. So welcome, Dr. Allen. Well, thank you, Melinda. This is really quite a quite a pleasure. Well, I want to know how someone with a sociology background, I should let our listeners know you have both an MA and a PhD in sociology, and before that you have a master's in international agricultural development, and before that a BS in political economy of natural resources from UC Berkeley. How did you narrow your focus to the food system? Well, it actually came from my childhood where I grew up. My grandmother was a single mother, small family farmer, and I spent a lot of time on the farm. And I observed, even at an early age, what struck me as significant inequities that included She struggled. She worked so hard. There were these large farms growing up all around her, and it just seemed so unfair. At the same time, she was a fruit farmer, and so migrant workers would come who would work just as hard, and that seemed even more unfair. Hmm. And then later, I've always needed to support myself. I worked in the food system as restaurant server and food processing worker, and learned more from the inside about working conditions and privileges in those industries. I find it really interesting that as a child you were able to recognize the injustice. And I think that children do have this innate sense of fairness. And then something happens along the way, and I'm not quite sure what it is, but as you described in your talk and also in your book, There is quite a bit of injustice in the food system, and I'm not sure how we allow that to happen under our watch. Under our watch. It's a great question, Melinda. In fact, I think it may be the question that it is tolerated. I think maybe not so much tolerated as unseen. Mm. One hypothesis, a working hypothesis, is that if people had a better idea of what working conditions were like in the food industry, for example, that they wouldn't stand for it. I have to believe that because the alternative is that people do know exactly what's going on and they don't care. I believe that people care. Mm -hmm. I think they care, and I think to some extent or to a large extent really, we feel powerless to change. You know, we these problems are so large, we don't know how to make the change. And I, I'll liken this to seeing homeless people on the street. It's easier to drop a few cents in a can than to really work to change the policies that got them there in the first place. 
even if we knew which policies needed to be changed and how to go about changing them? Well, yes, and it is important <laughs> that the people get those those few pennies because that makes a difference in getting through the day or not. But, of course, it's a Band-Aid solution, and part of the issue is that everyone is working so hard to keep the wolf from the door themselves. Few people who are working two or three jobs also have the time to volunteer, to write to Congress people, to initiate legislation, and so on. So we need to find a way to work incrementally and to not feel guilty for what we can't do. I think everyone needs to pick their spot of what really impassions them and where they think they can make change. And part of what we're doing in this, you mentioned that I have this new master's program, is the goal of it is to really blend the best of academics in terms of big picture thinking and analysis with on-the-ground projects so that the students in this program will really come to understand in a collectively the big picture, but they'll understand where for them personally they can make a difference. They won't feel this sort of paralysis because they know they're doing a part of something. Is this analogous to service learning? In a way it is, but the people who have applied to our program are professionals. They're people who are mid-career often, They have been working in food systems in one dimension or another, and they're coming to our program because from their experience, they have questions, they have concerns. They want to work together with other people to go back into their jobs and really make a difference that right now they feel is not open to them. Mm -hmm. Now, you've spent many years in Santa Cruz, both as a student and then as a director of the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems. What did you learn there that you are taking to this new program? Well, the work that I did at UC Santa Cruz was focused predominantly on social justice research in the food system. So I learned how to do research, how to write, how to connect with community groups. And all of that I'm bringing with me to this new program. One of the things you spoke about when you were here in Columbia was there was a random survey of college students. And I I just find this so interesting. And what they said, their number one concern was the humane treatment of animals. Mm -hmm. But only half of them recognized living wage as a measure of social justice. And I wonder if you can talk about, with because of your background in social movements, if you can talk a little bit about how and why we see certain issues as problematic and others not so much. I think, and of course I'm not a psychologist, but I think a lot of it has to do with social location and personal experience. And so a lot depends on how you grew up. A lot depends on what happens in your day-to-day life. And so if you're a student at a Research One university, 
the chances are good that you have never experienced some of the really difficult conditions in the food system. I mean, many have, but I would venture that most have not. Whereas animals are something that most people are opposed to cruelty to animals. Mm-hmm. And the rest, the, the food workers are kind of out of sight, out of mind. Of course, that is starting to change. And the other interesting thing about that study, Melinda, is, yes, animals were above living wage for workers, but living wage for workers was way above the things that we tend to talk about in food systems, local, small, and organic. These were way below prioritization of living wage for workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I think that the local food system, while it seems like it certainly is a good thing for local regional economies, I think sometimes it can hide bigger problems in the food system. Would you agree? I would hide and in some cases perpetuate, I would say. Certainly local actions are wonderful. I love going to the local farmer's market. I love eating local food. But there's a number of issues, and I'll just point out a couple. One is that any community has power and resource differentials embedded within it. So just because you're in your community doesn't mean that there's a level playing field. Another is that I think focusing just on local can sort of draw these boundaries about caring, that we take care of our own, but those who are outside this imaginary circle are on their own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a challenge. And then a third is that so much of what we do at a locality is really determined by state, national, or global policies, economic structures, and laws. Mm-hmm. So, so these larger structures really determine what's possible, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. So I I believe in local action, community action, absolutely, but in a context of knowing what the other drivers are of the food system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Even at my own local farmer's market, which is a wonderful place, many of the farmers will say that they can't find, say, non-GMO feed or they can't afford the organic certification. So you're right. There are larger structures, larger powers in place that limit this outwardly looking happy little food system, but there are issues that local farmers face. And I'll give you another example. I was up in northern Michigan, and one of the farmers said, you know, I really can't afford anything at my local farmer's market other than what I produce. Mm, Yes, that's an issue of... Because the farmers need to earn a living and with, I mean, and there are some significant exceptions to this, but by and large, what we found is that people who are able to go to farmers markets are often people with enough disposable income to be able to do so. And even with giving out coupons to low income people, to try out the farmer's market, 
people like getting those coupons, they'll go, but they don't sustain participation for a number of reasons, the you know, the most significant of which is income and transportation. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I always question those and they're wonderful programs. You have the double up bucks and the prescriptions that some people get from their healthcare providers to purchase food at the local farmer's market, but I always scratch my head and say, but this isn't sustainable. And the economic structures that produce the poverty that led to needing those coupons in the first place is really where we need to go. And those are much harder discussions to have. They're harder discussions to have. They're the kinds of discussions we'll be having in our program. (laughs) But we need to have them. Again, even if we don't figure out the solution overnight, we need to cultivate that awareness that some problems can be solved at a micro or, or community level, but most really are outside the scope of what a few people doing great work can accomplish. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Patricia Allen. She is the chair of a new department. She's the chair and professor of the Department of Food Systems and Society at Merrill Hurst University in Portland, Oregon. Prior to this, she was director of the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and she is the author of a terrific book in 2004 called Together at the Table, Sustainability and Sustenance in the American Agri-Food System. So in talking about those economic structures that need to change, where would you start? Well, I would start with understanding that there are multiple levels at which these economic structures are shaping the food system. I would look at federal policies that give out money to some and not to others, to look at principles such as the right to food, and at other levels look at what's happening in the educational system. You know, do we have required courses at elementary school, high school, college that talk about the food system? Because it affects every single person. It's not like some other topic that would be great to know about, but you don't really need to. So I'd look at educational policies. I'd look at subsidies, economic policies, and then there are smaller-scale policies that have to do with, you know, health and safety regulations. In some cases, I think they need to be ramped up significantly. In other cases, I think they may be detrimental to developing a sustainable and just food system. Hmm. Give me an example. Well, one one example is uh, after one of the E. coli scares, coming up with policies that said that you couldn't you couldn't grow um, hedgerows around your farm because there was a thought that that um, animals would nest there and then create feces that would contaminate food when in fact it's not at all clear that that is the source of of the e coli contamination 
That is a great example. And I remember when that was being discussed, and I thought, oh my gosh, I think we've lost our minds because we're going to just eradicate the small amount of biodiversity that we had left in an effort to prevent foodborne illness. And like you say, we, we really didn't have any proof that that was the source. So yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, um, and another example is where we might need more regulation in some industries that create human illness in some ways, like antibiotic resistance in the human population that is brought on by the, you know, the subtherapeutic use of antibiotics in the animal industry and so on. Mm-hmm. Right. Let me change gears here and, and talk a little bit about hunger specifically. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned when you were speaking in Columbia was your experience with food policy councils. And sometimes the more certain people spoke about hunger, the less they were listened to. Can you explain that? Well, I can't explain it, but I can speculate. Good. And and it is that people often don't want to hear about chronic tragedy. Yeah. In a way that they don't really feel that there's anything they can do about it. Like you were mentioning earlier, Melinda. Mm-hmm. It's and also food policy councils are often composed of of people who have other kinds of jobs, you know, in order to legitimize their participation on the policy council, they have to be working for their organization, public or private, and if it's not a hunger relief organization, then that's not their main focus. And if, I mean, let's face it, someone who has experienced a, a lifetime of hunger is is likely to have less education, less persuasive power, less economic power than others sitting at the table who may be heads of organizations or business leaders. And so, not only do people sometimes not want to hear the message, they cut out those people as being other, you know, different than they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really a, a struggle because there's a large contingent of community members who like the idea of setting up, say, another food pantry or, not, or a food bank. And there, there's another group that says, no, wait a second, we've got to get, we've got to walk farther upriver and find out what's causing the hunger in the first place. But there is such a drive towards charity, and, and the solution to these problems seem to be charity-based. And I struggle with how to get around that, how to talk about this issue and move beyond charity. Well, and um, Jan Poppendiek wrote a great book called Sweet Charity that that addresses this issue, but even more timely, I want to let you know that there is going to be a Closing the Hunger Gap conference in September in Arizona where it's the leadership are food banks saying we need to move beyond the charity model. It's It's not only that we can't keep up with the demand, it's that we need to look at other mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Yes, We need to meet people's immediate needs today, but we need to participate in creating a system where those needs don't even exist. Mm 
I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know that insightful thought leaders are moving forward with this, and I'm, I'll be anxious to see the outcome of the meeting. One of the things that I really like in your book, and I think it's a great place to start a conversation about alleviating hunger and restoring dignity in the food system, is a chart that you have. They're key elements of competing agricultural paradigms. And on the one side is conventional agriculture, and on the other side is alternative. Mm-hmm. And I love that, I mean, it's a long, there are a long list of items, and I wonder, is there anything in particular that you want to pull from this list? <laughs> well, I'll bring a few things up because okay. I, there are a few things that jump out at me. So under different headings, for example, under conventional agriculture, you've got centralization. Under the alternative system, it's decentralized. Mm-hmm. Under conventional, you've got dependence, alternative, independent, conventional, competition, alternative, community, and increased cooperation. With conventional agriculture, there's a domination of nature. The alternative mm-hmm. system has harmony. The mm-hmm. conventional ag looks to specialization and a narrow genetic base, which personally scares me. Mm-hmm. And the alternative the system is one that is really that has a broad genetic base, lots of biodiversity. And I love this last one because it really hits on the, the hunger piece. With conventional agriculture, there's a great deal of exploitation. And mm-hmm. with alternative agriculture, there's more restraint or there's a consideration of all external costs with Consumption restrained to benefit future generations, a much healthier form of consumption. Mm-hmm. So from the list, is there anything that you want to pull out of that? Well, I would, I would say that, that without going into the detail, the central tendency, I think, of the industrial food system has been domination and extraction. Mm-hmm. Extraction of labor, extraction of, of resources, and maximization of economic return without regard to, to externalities that uh, the aquifer is getting used up, things like this. Whereas in alternative, there is, as you pointed out, more, more emphasis on cooperation, on biodiversity, on less materialism, I actually think we need a third column that talks about food justice, that in some cases we may need a blend of the conventional and the alternative system and yet something brand new as well. Hmm. I would say that many people's voices have been excluded from both the conventional and the alternative paradigm, and that's the next step in in working toward food justice is to to be cast a much wider net to include the experiences and the voices of people who are actually suffering in our current food system. Mm-hmm. Who would you like to hear from first? I would like to hear from people who, this this is only talking about North America because that's where the primary focus is at the moment. I would like to hear from people in communities 
where hunger is actually experienced. I would like to hear from restaurant workers, from farm workers, from people who are working two and three jobs just to be able to put food on the table. The people that I consider not only excluded, but in some senses discarded in our current food system. Mm. And I think these are the people who will make food issues visible, audible, palpable, personal, and therefore, I would say, solvable. Mm -hmm. In a section of your book under food politics, you talk about food has always been political and that Bush and Lacey in 1984 remind us that ancient civilizations rose and fell based upon their ability to maintain a secure, stable food supply. How much at risk do you think our current food supply is and therefore our civilization? Well, I think that food supply is very much at risk all around the world for a large group of people. I mean, hunger and food insecurity is a huge issue. And I think that how we go about solving that problem will determine whether we make progress on the evolutionary scale in terms of civilization. I was reading the other day about disaster where Bags of rice were were brought in, which then collapsed the local economy where farmers and vendors were still working, but then nobody bought their food. And so an alternative would have been to give people money so that they could support the people in their economy and then rebuild that economy. Mm -hmm. So I think how we approach the solutions is going to determine whether we have a very grim or a very abundant future. Well, do you want to leave us uh, very quickly in 30 seconds with a charge? I think the charge is for us to consider this. This will sound a little bit trite, but for us to consider that we're all part of a team wanting to win the struggle for food justice. And a team is composed of a group of people. We all have the same goal, which is to win the game. And everybody knows the rules, and we change the rules. But we work toward this game with with different skills, in different locations, with different talents. And we have to be active. We have to be innovative. And we have to cooperate. We have to keep our eye on the ball of the big picture. Who can play in this game? Everybody, everywhere. Dr. Allen, I want to thank you so much for that. That was a great nugget for us to chew on as we consider our future and our future food system. And I just want to let our listeners know we have been speaking with Dr. Patricia Allen. She is chair and professor of a new department at Merrillhurst University in Portland, Oregon. She is with the Department of Food Systems and Society. 
Prior to that, Dr. Allen was director of the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and she has a terrific book called Together at the Table, Sustainability and Sustenance in the American Agri-Food System. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And Dr. Allen, I want to thank you for finding the time to speak with me. Thanks so much, Melinda. Melinda.